Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. In today's episode, we're continuing our coverage of Democratic presidential candidates. We're talking to Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado. Yvonne interviewed Senator Bennett last week, where he hosted an education-themed roundtable with local educators at Tempe High School. He announced his candidacy back in May. On CBS This Morning, Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado made his candidacy official. So, Ron, give us the background on Senator Bennett. Well, Bennett won election to the Senate in 2010 and 2016, two cycles that were not great ones for Democrats. And before that, he was the school superintendent of Denver's public schools. You might remember him for going after Texas Senator Ted Cruz back in January during the government shutdown. These crocodile tears that the senator from Texas is crying for first responders are too hard for me to take. Because when you sh- when the senator from Texas shut this government down in 2013, my state was flooded. It was underwater. People were killed. People's houses were destroyed. Their small businesses were ruined forever. And back in 2013, he was a member of the Gang of Eight with former Senators John McCain and Jeff Flake, both Arizona Republicans. The bipartisan group of senators collaborated on a comprehensive immigration reform bill. That legislation sought to balance a pathway of citizenship for those without legal status with massive investments in border security. The bill cleared the Senate, but the House of Representatives didn't act on it. These days, he's running for president, though he's polling at less than one percentage point, so he didn't qualify for the most recent debate. It appears his campaign is more about ideas than viability. Here's what he had to say. Senator Michael Bennett, thank you so much for joining The Gaggle, AZ Central, and the USA Today Network. Let's uh, go ahead and get right in it. What is your big pitch to Arizona voters uh, as you run for president? Well, my pitch is that we've got to bring this country back together again. And that means not just uniting the Democratic Party, but also getting some of those nine million people who voted twice for Barack Obama and once for Donald Trump, not just so we can beat Donald Trump, who I really think has earned the right to be a one-term president, but uh, not to go back a second term, but so that we can govern the country again. And as a senator from Colorado, I think I have a sense of what uh, Arizonans are thinking about when it comes to health care, when it comes to education, when it comes to climate change. And uh, I believe I've had an agenda that I've worked on for the last 10 years, not just to run for president, that I think could be that unifying agenda. And um, I think it's important for the Western states to have representation. Colorado does have a similar electoral uh, breakdown as Arizona, a third, a third, and a third. Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Kirsten Sinema won her seat in the Senate last year as a pretty much as as an apolitical figure. How do you replicate that 
in 2020. You're exactly right. We're a third, a third, a third. And the discipline that creates, if you're going to be successful when you run, is that you say the same thing in the primary as you say in the general election. You say the same thing in rural areas that you say in urban areas. It's too complicated to go back and forth to navigate. And sometimes people say to me, well, don't you need to tack way to the left to win the primary, and then you're going to be able to be in the general? By then, it's too late. And Arizona voters know that. Colorado voters know that. So I think that kind of authenticity is what people want in the middle of the country. And I think we should nominate somebody who's got that kind of discipline. Do proposals like uh, free universal preschool, universal health care, free community college, do those win over those people there in the middle? Well, I think that the one thing on your list that I would say does win people over is free preschool because there's no the kids can't pay for it. And we have to come together as a country to figure out how to do it because if kids show up to kindergarten not having had preschool and other kids show up having had some preschool, the kids that um, that don't have it are 30 million words behind the other kids. So if we expect to ever close the achievement gap in this country, we do need universal preschool in America. But the other stuff, I don't think people actually are looking for free this or free that, free the other thing. And um, and I don't think they're looking for plans like Medicare for All, which is Bernie's plan to make pr- make private insurance illegal in this country and raise taxes by 31 to $33 trillion to pay for it. We don't need to do that. Instead, we could, we could adopt my plan, which is a public option that finishes the job on the Affordable Care Act, gives everybody in America the chance to have a choice for their family about whether they want public insurance or private insurance. And your plan, not to interrupt you, but to interrupt you, your plan is no is (laughs) Medicare X, right? My plan is known as Medicare X. It doesn't raise taxes on anybody. It doesn't create any deficit issues. And it, I think we could have every person in America covered in three years. And that would be a virtue for the country because having uninsured people show up in the emergency room to get very expensive treatment isn't good for anybody. The number of undocumented immigrants coming here from someplace else along the southern border, those numbers have dramatically dropped in the wake of proposals that the Senate and the House and the president have all uh, agreed to. How urgent is the situation on the border and what would you do specifically to address some of these longer term issues? Thank you for for distinguishing between those two issues. So we do have a refugee crisis at the border that we need to deal with. And I think if we had a president that was behaving behaving as though we were a smart and wealthy country. We would lead the entire hemisphere to figure out how to find a place for the refugees who are fleeing from the Northern Triangle countries of Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador uh, to, to live free from violence. And we'd also be working in those countries to try to mitigate the underlying challenges that are making people run for their lives. But that's not the same thing as the long-term immigration challenges that you mentioned for this country. And I have to say, it's a wonderful thing for me to be back in Arizona because the single greatest privilege I have had in the Senate was working on the Gang of Eight in 2013 on immigration. And John McCain and Jeff Flake both senators from this border state were in that room. There was no other state that had two senators. And the bill that we wrote, which got 68 votes in the Senate, had a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented people, the most progressive DREAM Act that had ever been written. And it had 
$46 billion of border security. Massive, massive, massive investments. investments. Massive investments. It dwarfs Trump's rinky-dink $6 billion that Mexico is supposed to pay for, but it was sophisticated 21st century technology that would allow us to see every inch of the border. I have flown this border with John McCain, and I have seen the mountains that you would have to traverse. We can see every inch of it. We don't have to build a wall over all of it. And um, and where we were in 2013, I think, is where the American people are in immigration, committed to our history as a nation of immigrants and committed to our history as a nation of laws. And that's what, if I'm president, that's what we're going to get back to. You spend a lot of time talking about economic mobility. I say that I spend a lot of time talking, which is what some people say. <laughs> well, we all spend a lot of time talking these days, it feels like. But it does seem like you, a cornerstone, obviously, of your message is economic mobility. How do you reconcile or connect kind of the the status of of our economy right now which seems pretty good yep. for quite a few people not so good maybe for others but how do you how do you sell that to the american people well i think the american people know it if i had to summarize my town halls for the last 10 years in colorado but also in iowa and in New Hampshire, it's people coming saying, Michael, we're killing ourselves, but we cannot afford housing, health care, higher education, or early childhood education. In other words, you can't afford a middle-class life. And for the families, I used to be a school superintendent in Denver before I was in this job, and most of the kids live in poverty there. And what those parents would say to me is, Michael, we're killing ourselves. And they are. They're working two and three jobs in this country, and yet they can't get their kids out of poverty. This is, we call it economic mobility now. This used to be called the American dream. And we need a new American dream. And this democracy will not survive if all of the benefits of, the, of a growing economy accrue to the very top of the economy, which is what's happened for the last 50 years. I mean, we can say GDP is growing. We can say there's a low unemployment rate. And that's all true. But if the benefits are all going to the wealthiest people in the country, um, that means there are a lot of people that are going to be stretched. And the vast majority of people are stretched. And it's not because they're not working hard. There's this mythology out here that, that people, you know, that they're not working. They are working. And we have to do a better job of rewarding that work. Uh, by changing our tax policy, as I've proposed, which would dramatically increase the take-home pay of Americans and reduce childhood poverty in this country by 40 percent. Shifting gears, the president is facing an impeachment inquiry uh, by the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives. If this uh, moves to the Senate, uh, to a formal trial, how do you think well, how would you and how do you think your colleagues should proceed? Well, I think we should proceed without prejudging the case. We are the jurors in the case. And the House is going to have to make its impeachment decision. And then we will have to um, take the appropriate action. But I think in all cases, we need to be aware that America, you know, is... Um, uh, doesn't want one more partisan food fight on their hands, you know, and if we are going to stand up for the rule of law and if we're going to stand up for separation of powers, we need to do it in a way that actually builds trust in our democracy again. How do you do that when we are in such a hyper partisan environment and you have a president who isn't 
seemingly even willing to recognize the powers of Congress. Well, he will have to. I mean, this is not this is a guy who's run scams for his entire life. He is a grifter and and he's trying to do the same thing here. He's not going to get away with it. You know, you saw yesterday the court saying that he's got to give up his tax returns. He's the only president in, in modern American history who hasn't done that. He's not above the law. He's going to have to do it. And he's going to have to respond to these subpoenas. He's going to try to stonewall and stonewall and stonewall. But in the end, uh, I have great faith in the institutions of this country. You know, I remember back when Watergate happened years ago. That was a really dark time in American history. We were in the Vietnam War and Nixon had done what Nixon had done. Now is a moment when our institutions, and I should say not just our institutions, our elected leadership actually rose to the occasion and restored the faith that a lot of people had in our democracy. We have the opportunity to do that again now. Final question, and I have to ask you, with all due respect, you are still polling so low. You're not going to be on the debate stage later this month. Why are you still doing this? I'm still doing this because I think I have a chance to win. I'm still doing this because I think that there, there is a uh, that we need to unify the country and that the Twitter storms that happen every day, whether they're generated by the president or somebody else, that politicians just find themselves, you know, swinging from one direction to the other. That's not the leadership that we need. And I still think I've got a chance to do well in Iowa and do well in New Hampshire. I've got to do well in both those places if I'm going to continue the campaign. But that's why I'm still in it. Anything else you want to add to our listeners? People can go to MichaelBennett.com and check it out. All right. Thank you so much. Great seeing you. Thank you. you. All right, listeners, let's dive into some afterthoughts. Ron, what do you make of Bennett's answer on why he's staying in the race? Well, it's like he's staying in the race to either try to elevate the conversation on ideas or, more likely it seems, position himself to serve in some other role in the next Democratic administration. There's a vice president who needs to be picked. There are cabinet members who are going to be needed. He certainly has made a name for himself in education. It seems like uh, one landing spot for uh, a Senator Bennett who will have elevated his profile somewhat, if not with primary voters. I tend to agree. He clearly has a very good handle on, you know, the ins and outs of education policy, charter school accountability, the different silos within the federal government and local governments that prevent um, schools from moving ahead. And he gets really in the weeds about different pots of funding. Um, And it seems like that is really where his passion is, right? Education. I could definitely see him taking on some sort of role as education secretary. He spent about an hour talking at this very intimate roundtable with school board members from from Tempe and some educators and some other uh, education-related folks. And, um, you know, his biggest applause line came when he said, you know, first thing out the gate that he would do if he was president is get rid of Betsy DeVos. And she is Trump's uh, U.S. education secretary. She's very well known, or at least her policy should be well known here in Arizona with the school choice movement. Uh, That line from him drew a round of applause. You know, he actually went so far as to call her ignorant Um, which was uh, very, very interesting to see someone speak so bluntly about, you know, a a, a sitting public official. He also 
drew, uh, you know, some, I don't know if it was necessarily applause, but uh, he definitely struck the right crowd with chord with this crowd when he talked about the different policies that he would try to implement to prevent gun violence and, um, you know, kind of raise the level of discourse in this country. And in our interview, he spent quite a bit of time talking about that. So we've had the privilege to talk to a number of these presidential candidates so far and see some others uh, as well. What is it that the the Michael Bennett's who are, you know, lagging badly in the polls don't have evidently that we do see from some of the others like Senator Warren, uh, who is closing in on Joe Biden these days. What was your sense? I mean, he, he knew how to get at least some applause when he uh, goes after, you know, Betsy DeVos. But why can't he, you know, push that out to a, a wider audience and, and to a bigger platform? So he comes across as a really moderate, reasonable, smart guy. He's very likable. He's uh, he mumbles a little bit like he's he's very, you know, you can tell like his brain's going and he has things to say, but he doesn't seem to really care much about the delivery and the applause lines. And he isn't very practiced when it comes to, you know, delivering the zings that we might see on the debate stage with Joe Biden or Donald Trump at his rallies. I mean, this is a guy who looks like he just wants to get stuff done and he doesn't want to put on a whole show to do it. And so, you know, if you're sizing up all the candidates, does this guy resonate with middle America? I don't know. That's it for today, Gaggle listeners. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Maritza Dominguez with oversight from Katie O'Connell. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.